I V M. The Tamil country stretches from the hills of Vishnu in the north to the oceans at the Cape in the south. In this region of cool waters were the four great cities of Madurai with its towers, Oraiyur which was famous, to Maltwis Kanchi, and Puhar with its roaring waters. The words you've just heard are from an ancient Tamil text. composed sometime around the turn of the first millennium CE at a time when south india was first making its presence felt in global trade just to the north at this time the amaravati stupa was rising and nagarjuna and his skeptical monks were going about debating across the indian subcontinent new literary cultures were emerging new ways of thinking about statehood and royalty and here in the deepest south is where another critical ingredient of early india would emerge that was the merchant corporation just because kings pretend that history is all about them doesn't mean that it's what history is actually about after all now coming back to these words you've probably heard of the hills of vishnu which are in tirupati you've heard of madurai kanchi and maybe even urayur in fact most south indians have probably visited these cities which were first being talked about 2000 years ago but what is this puhar of the roaring waters this is its story the story of the great trading city of kaveri pumpattinam also known as puhar i am anirudh kanisetti and welcome to echoes it's july 200 ce Imagine that we're hovering in space somewhere above the Himalayas looking south. The great peninsula of the Deccan and of South India stands alone proudly, a strip of land in the vast Indian Ocean. Far off to one side is the Arabian Peninsula and the Red Sea, which is next to Egypt and the massive continent of Africa. On the other side, a little closer, is Southeast Asia, and beyond that the vast lands of china from here it looks like southern india is almost perfectly in between the arabian peninsula and southeast asia from where we're standing we can see that a great swell of dark clouds is gathering in the west blown by mighty winds in the distance we hear a rumble of thunder if we descend from the heavens and come closer to the clouds We can see that the same winds that blow them are also blowing something else, something tiny. Through the cloud we see flashes of color. We hear the beating of drums. We hear shouts in Greek, Latin and Egyptian. As we get closer and closer, we see a vast fleet of ships heading towards India, weighted down by gold, wine, coral and horses. But this fleet is sort of special. They're not heading for the western coast of India to the domains of the Shakas but to the east. They're en route to sweet Puhar as famous as the glory of the Chola royal line encircled by the waters of the sea. And they're not the first fleet to come here. Puhar by this time is already a vast flourishing port city. In fact, thanks to its perfect location between east and west, it has already become one of the wealthiest cities in the subcontinent. and it is home to much of the religious diversity 
luxurious consumption and literary sophistication that we've seen and will see in many other ancient Indian cities. Puhar is in Tamilakam, the Tamil country, the southernmost tip of the subcontinent. When I say country, of course, I'm not referring to a single kingdom or state. Like most of ancient India at this time, Tamilakam was also torn by war between three major dynasties, the Cholas, the Cheras and the Pandyas, along with dozens of other minor chieftains. The Cholas would become super famous in another 700 years or so. But today, as we follow the Roman trading fleet to Puhar, soaking in the warm sun of the Indian Ocean, we don't need to worry about them. Because the real heroes of Puhar weren't its kings, but a class that we might not generally associate with ancient India. The merchants. The importance of merchants in ancient India in general, and Tamilakam in particular, isn't something we generally think about. When compared to, say, ancient Greece, where winning loot through conquest was the ideal, ancient Tamil culture also saw merchants and traders as equally honored members of society. And why wouldn't they? By this point in human history, we've seen how large agrarian empires had sprung up in the Mediterranean, in China, and in North India. Humans across the world were beginning to explore, to exchange ideas, and to do what humans love to do get rich and live well. To Romans, that meant getting their hands on Indian textiles, perfumes and handicrafts. After all, that's how they got the beautiful ivory statuette whose story we heard in episode 4 of this podcast. When the monsoon winds were discovered and the Romans conquered Egypt in the last century BCE, they got access to the Deccan coast, sure, but they also got access to South Indian markets and South Indian markets got direct access to Roman gold. Just as in the Deccan, an explosion of material prosperity and urbanization followed, except in Tamilakam, which is a wide, fertile agrarian belt, so the impact was absolutely huge. And leading the wave, financing kings, pushing market access further inland, and providing employment to everyone from goldsmiths to woodcutters, were the merchants. Ancient merchants were a little different from modern-day venture capitalists. For one thing, they didn't wear suits or spend most of their time making PowerPoint presentations and staring at vistas of skyscrapers. Merchants had to get their hands dirty, literally. You see, ancient Indian states were nowhere near as law-abiding as ours, not that ours is very law-abiding. You don't usually have to worry about your truck being hijacked on modern Indian highways, do you? But back in the day, when every city had its own king, highway robbery was a constant threat. Tamil merchants had to be warriors to fight for their goods and money. According to a contemporary text, probably funded by some rich merchant, of course, they are hardworking. Because of their skill, they are able to evade the arrows of highway robbers and have no scars on their chests. At their side, they have shining swords with handles of ivory. They are brave warriors who will not turn their backs but will attack robbers with spears, which they carry like the god Murugan. So individual merchants were fearsome warriors, but to make real profits, they had to move massive quantities of goods from the agrarian regions out to the ports. And while they were doing that, to keep their goods and caravans safe and to negotiate with whatever goon managed to get some other goons to declare him as a king, ancient Tamil merchants did something that might seem surprisingly modern to us. They formed guilds or corporations to share their resources and make a collective profit. 
guilds ensured some kind of quality standards and provided credit to their more adventurous members. You see, sea trade in ancient times before the invention of engines was a risky and expensive business, far too risky and expensive for dealing in common goods like grain which could just be grown locally. No, the sea was for luxury items, a high risk, high profit business. The wealth, power and status that it brought to merchants made them extraordinarily influential in South Indian politics, something that we'll see over the course of this podcast. But at this early time, before the emergence of really powerful South Indian kingdoms, the land was still quite agrarian and rural. Cities were established either as political centers or as ports, and port cities such as Puhar, were jointly administered by state officials and corporate assemblies of the merchant guilds, which is a striking example of the alliance of the state and market nearly 1500 years before Europe got around to it. Puhar had two districts, the Maruvurpakkam, a commercial district along the sea, and the Pattinapakkam, a residential district a little further inland. The seashore was lined with wharfs, where the poet tells us, Anchored ships with flags on the mass resembled tethered elephants. This is where our Roman fleet would have docked before meeting the city's customs officials and negotiating with porters to move their goods to a royal warehouse. Along the streets, we are told, Peddling traders roamed selling colored pastes and aromatic incense. Broad streets were piled so high with silk, coral, sandalwood, pearls, gems and gold that they could not be measured. At night, traders would light lamps in their shops. Lights glimmered off jewels, sweets and eatables and were lit by women selling toddy. Lights glimmered from the lighthouse in the boats of fishermen, by the people of various countries and by the guards of the warehouses. A great market street separated the Maruvur Pakkam from the Pattina Pakkam, where most of the populace, including merchants, farmers, doctors, astrologers and priests lived, as did bards, dancers and courtesans. The wealthiest residents would have lived in multi-story buildings with open terraces, where they may have enjoyed watching the moon set over the Bay of Bengal. Now, despite their political and economic influence, which you'd think would make people jealous, right? Merchants were highly respected thanks to their support for local festivals and generous donations to religious charities, which was probably motivated by what Kanakalata Mukund calls a complex mix of values, beliefs and self-interest. At this time, both Buddhism and Jainism were major presences in South India. In the last episode of this podcast, A South Indian Buddha, we saw how the charismatic preacher Nagarjuna went about spreading the popularity of his philosophy and religion. And before that, we saw that trade in agrarian networks intersected in religious hubs where people donated to Buddhist stupas. It was a useful way for commoners, like most of our ancestors, to feel that they were embedded in their societies. And Tamil merchants were no different. When they made donations, they were obviously claiming it was so they could get spiritual merit. But these donations were also commemorated with inscriptions adding to the donor's brand image and making him or her more prestigious and recognizable in society. The city of Puhar is an excellent example of just how religiously diverse South India was at this point. The city thronged with foreigners, such as the Romans in the fleet we observed, and its wealth attracted people from across South India and Southeast Asia as well. There would have been something for everyone. 
beautiful gardens and shrines dotted the town. Modern Hinduism as we know it didn't exist, though many minor and major gods and goddesses were worshipped, such as Murugan, who was later identified with the North Indian war god Skanda, and Manimegala, the tempestuous goddess of the sea. There was some notion of caste and class, and of the importance of the Vedas, but these gods were also worshipped by Buddhists and Jains. In fact, Manimegala is a character in some of the longest and most interesting Buddhist Jataka stories. That's not to say that people back then were perfectly tolerant, merely that they saw religion and the differences between religions in very different ways than we did. Here's an example from the Manimegalai, an epic poem. A naked Jain monk is walking down the street, sweeping the ground ahead of him to make sure he doesn't accidentally step on and kill any insects. He's accosted by a drunkard. Good monk, come share this sweet toddy liquor made from good coconut palm juice. My guru taught me that only those who get drunk on good palm wine, no ecstasy in this world, happiness in their next life and eternal bliss. There are no tiny beasts in the liquor, generously secreted by the palm tree. You will not have to risk being a murderer. Good, wise monk, you will see that drunkenness clears your mind. But if you find it more to your liking to fast rather than drink an honest toddy, then go on your way. Now, according to the person who told the story, the drunkard failed to convince the monk. But he also notes that there are many who let themselves be convinced by the words of drunkards. Maybe the people of ancient Puhar weren't that different from me on New Year's Eve. Seriously, you should have seen how hungover I was last week. Anyway, point is, it's so reassuring that I was technically just following in the footsteps of my ancestors. So how do we know so much about the ancient Tamil land? We've seen how in the Deccan, literary and cultural battles were erupting as people tried to make sense of new social and economic systems using language. That overlaps with something very similar happening in the Tamil land in the centuries before and after the turn of the first millennium CE, which are called the Sangam period. A Sangam was a sort of great hall for poets, who were from a variety of social backgrounds, conducted under the aegis of powerful kings who wanted to use their literary output to immortalize themselves. But in the process, they also did a huge favor to us and gave us a fleeting glimpse of a pivotal and long-gone period in our history. These poets would compose in Tamil, laying the foundations for the later evolution and popularity of Tamil as a classical language and establishing many of the poetic styles that still echo through South Indian poetry. In fact, some of their patterns may have been inspired by the Prakrit poetry that was being written in the Satavahana courts of the Deccan. Historians are unsure as to whether the Sangam poems were composed around the turn of the first millennium or merely written down then. It could be that the original Sangam poems were passed down orally and that they were only written down, like the Vedas, at a later date. Nevertheless, Sangam poetry remains an invaluable source for trying to understand ancient Tamilakam. Their influence is clearly evident in the five great epics of Tamil literature, including the Silapadikaram and the Manimegalai, both of which have extensive sections set in Pohar, reflecting just how important the place was back in the day. The Shilapadikaram is the story of Kannagi, the wife of Kovalan, the son of a wealthy merchant from Puhar. One of the key themes in the Shilapadikaram is that of a chaste wife. It should therefore surprise nobody that one of the first things that Kovalan does after getting married is move in with a courtesan called Madhavi. 
Madhavi's mother is a cunning and exploitative woman, which most courtesans' mothers are in ancient Indian literature, and continually keeps extracting money from the saintly Kannagi, who, being a loyal and long-suffering wife, slowly gives away all her property so her husband can sleep with a courtesan that he's in love with. Soon enough, Kovalan realizes the errors of his ways and goes back to his faithful wife. Then the young couple go to Madurai, where Kovalan tries to sell one of Kanagi's ankle bracelets, which looks the same as one of the bracelets of the Pandya queen of Madurai. He is promptly framed and executed, and the furious, vengeful Kanagi burns down half the city of Madurai before dying herself. Relationship goals, am I right? Anyway, Kovalan's earthly affairs haven't been wrapped up yet. You see, before realizing his terrible mistake, he had fathered a daughter with Madhavi the courtesan, who is the protagonist of the next great epic, the Mani Meghalai. Mani Meghalai, for that is the name of this beautiful daughter, is the most eligible lady in Puhar and is pursued by the Chola viceroy of the city. But she is rescued by the sea goddess Mani Meghala, who transports her to an island and sets her on the path to becoming an enlightened Buddhist, which involves Mani Meghalai visiting a preacher called Aravana Adigal, which might actually be a reference to everyone's favorite skeptic South Indian Buddhist, Nagarjuna. The fact that Buddhism is so integral to the early culture of the Tamil land, which is now mostly famous for massive Hindu temples, isn't actually that surprising. You see, Puhar was one of the ports where Buddhist monks would have left for Southeast Asia, accompanying merchant ships. Keeping in mind that Southeast Asia has a very large Buddhist population even today, and Tamil texts mention Java almost as if it was part of the Tamil land, it's quite possible that Southeast Asia would have been considered practically a part of the subcontinent, at least for South Indians. But after all this talk about Puhar, I'm sure you're wondering how such a wealthy and influential city could be forgotten. One possible answer is given to Mani Meghalai, a queen of the Naga people, a mythical race of serpents who were worshipped across the subcontinent, as we've seen, visited a sacred island with her newborn son. There, she met a pious merchant and told him to take the child to his father, the king of Puhar. Unfortunately, their boat was shipwrecked off the coast. The king, who was driven mad by grief, forgot to conduct the festival of Indra, one of ancient Puhar's most important public events. The furious protectress of the city, the goddess Manimegala, sent Tall waves rise in rage to invade our superb city. Indra, king of the heavenly worlds, bears down the lightning bolt in his hands. The ocean swells up and our magnificent city is swallowed by the sea. This description may well be of an actual historical tsunami that wiped out Puhar in roughly the 3rd century CE. What is certain from archaeological evidence is that the shoreline was gradually eroded, though the wharfs were rebuilt multiple times. And as the Tamil country became more urbanized, and its political equations changed, new port cities were built along the coast, and Kaveri Poom Patinam slowly became no more than a legend, a myth of good times, whose story is still whispered by the ocean waves and echoes in seashells on the Coromandel coast. If you like this podcast, why not leave us a rating and review? And don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcast app or ivmpodcast.com. While you're at it, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at IVM Podcast. And if you have questions or comments on this episode of Echoes, I'm at Ekanisetti on Twitter and at Anirudha Devaraya on Instagram.